Your Money Replay from Money FM 89.3. Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. This is Money and Me. We're taking a look back at 2019 at some of the biggest business stories. And we're going to look at the investment outlook of Arun Pai, Chief Crystal's Officer at Crystal AI. Our guest in Money and Me, how are you, Arun? Very good, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So whether it was the Fed or the ECB here on Money FM, we tracked every would be or could they or why didn't they around movements in interest rates this year. The Federal Reserve held rates steady at its December meeting last week, halting a series of rate cuts that lifted markets and countered recession fears amid ongoing trade uncertainty. President Donald Trump, who has become the third U.S. president to be impeached, spent the past year pressuring Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell to lower rates even further. Arun, how did markets react to adjustments to monetary policy? What stood out for you? It was a pretty interesting year. Huh? Like, uh, if you look back from, say, end of 2015, I think, which is when the Fed started raising interest rates from basically anywhere between 0 to 0.25, they thought the economy is doing much better than what it actually was, and they raised it quite dramatically up to 2.5%. And then 2019 suddenly became the U-turn year, where, as you mentioned, like Donald Trump, President Trump was extremely vocal about how the Fed should start, you know, in fact, it should even start making interest rates negative the way its counterpart in Europe has done. So three rate cuts in this year, I do not think the markets were expecting it as much. But that being said, uh, it was like the Kool-Aid, right? They drank that, they drank from that punch bowl because... Anything that, any as and when interest rates keep getting lower, that's kind of like a boost to the equity markets. The investors kind of cheered those moves, those three rate cuts. What will happen in 2020, time will tell, but I think 2019 was an extremely exceptional year because it was the first year after, in the last four, that actually saw three rate cuts. So with that dovish central bank move really driving markets in 2019, and you look forward to 2020, are, are you left with a modestly pro-risk stance then? Personally, I'm not. So I think the Fed chairman, uh, Jerome Powell, was kind of coerced into doing this, primarily because of Trump. I think 2020 might be the year uh, post one of the longest expansions the U.S. has ever seen, where you will actually see data uh, coming out from industries and companies that Main Street is actually not doing as well as what Wall Street is trying to represent. And that will lead to them being forced to cut interest rates on the back of actual data not doing that well. And, you know, we'll probably talk about trade wars later in the session, but uh, trade wars worsening. And that will lead them to be forced to cut interest rates through the course of 2020, but not just because of a couple of tweets here and there, but because of general, genuine underlying weakness in the economy. And that I don't think will be good for the market, obviously. Interesting. All right, we're going to dive into those trade wars. We can't stay away from them for too long. I just spoke with a renowned academic expert, in fact, on the U.S.-China trade war. He's a professor from Georgetown University. And Professor Arthur Dong told me that he is of the opinion that businesses are going to need to develop their own foreign policy, separate from states that they operate in, to make decisions in the midst of this U.S.-China trade war. So we know that some 
some tariffs are being suspended or cut and that China will buy more U.S. agricultural products. But apart from that, details, Arun, remain shadowy. What did the U.S.-China trade war really mean for economies in 2019? Oh, most definitely. It's been like an on-again, off-again, on-again situation, and we've pretty much talked about it, I think, every time that uh, you know I've been on. As I was mentioning earlier, I do not think this is something as simple as X billion dollars of soybean purchase that China will uh, has committed to take in will resolve anything. This is a lot more of a deep-seated issue between two between one existing superpower for the last 50, 60 years and an upcoming superpower, which obviously the former is not too happy about. And that will, I think, lead to a further divergence of a whole host of things. Now, if you look at, say, Huawei, right? That was the poster boy for the U.S. trying to clamp down Chinese ambitions. Huawei has now gone about being able to source chips from all across the world and come up with its own methodology and its own supply chains to create basically a purely domestic produced, or at least ex-US, ex-America-assisted produced smartphone. Its 5G networks have now gone into Africa, Asia, Europe. And sure, there are some countries that are saying no to it, but at the same time, a whole host of others have said yes. So you're trying to see like this dichotomy of like these two different kinds of systems that are being set up. One is the US and one is more China-centric. The Chinese government just came out, I think like a couple of weeks back, saying they want to stop using any kind of U.S. hardware products in the computer field in their government. So now there's a whole process of in the next two to three years, they'll be scrapping every single American brand from their own uh, government uh, utilization centers. And that's quite crazy, right? You would think in this day and age of the world getting a lot closer because of ease of transportation and logistics, Mm. we are starting to see two different systems being set up. And that's not great for anyone. And I can just imagine, I at least envision that in 2020, uh, once potentially the elections are out of the U.S., there'll be a lot more red, or even before that, for that matter. Hmm. Uh, each side will be trying to jostle to try and showcase to its local population that they're the strong ones in this argument. And they will definitely try to ensure that the, the defeat of the other side occurs. Yeah, it's so interesting that what you're saying is really tying in with what I heard this morning from the professor saying the decoupling of the U.S.-China economy is leading to these two new U.S.-China-centric worlds, so to speak, two different systems, and that businesses will really have to decide in terms of supply chains which ones or where they sit in these different ecosystems. Absolutely definitely. fascinating. Okay, we move to some of the world's biggest debuts. We cannot look away from Alibaba, whose Hong Kong debut is the biggest IPO of 2019. By far, the Chinese tech giant smashing the record in its debut in Hong Kong. When you think back on that story, Arun, that major listing for Alibaba, what stood out for you? What was amazing was the timing, right? Hong Kong is in the the midst of, uh, I think, their all-time highest political crisis. There were riots in the street. People were sadly getting injured, some people dying. And yet, it just goes to show the strength or the inherent strength of the economy, or at least the financial markets, I should say, where they could enable Alibaba to have the world's largest listing. You know, looking... Throughout 2019, specifically for Alibaba, I think it was more of a testament to Hong Kong Mm. and obviously to the business model and 
the scale of which onshore Chinese companies have now attained. They've achieved that kind of scale and they can raise that kind of capital in the U.S. In, and Hong Kong was the secondary listing, right? And yes. the U.S. was the first listing, which is great. 2019 had a whole host of other listings. You had Aramco, you had Uber. WeWork was this close to doing it, but sadly did not go through. And a whole host of other tech companies. Now, sadly, this is the radio, so people can't see my fake inverted commas or my air inverted commas over uh-huh. here. But a whole bunch of tech companies, tech like Lyft, uh, Peloton, uh, Chewy, basically anyone and everyone who wanted to raise capital in the public markets just went about writing the word tech in their annual reports and went about raising billions of dollars. While many of those public listings have massively collapsed in the public markets, I think 2020 might be uh, a little bit more of the same, if not to a worse degree for that matter. Well, you know, the tech companies like Uber and Lyft and Slack, uh, they struggled, didn't they? They flopped a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, Uber, I think at some point was down over like 40 percent. Slack anywhere from 25 to 35 percent. Lyft, very similar numbers. It's been an interesting environment where you've seen so much capital being pumped into these tech companies in the private space, wherein where they decided that, you know what, maybe we are actually worth this much money. Let's try and go onto the roulette table of the public markets and hopefully being able to manage to stay the same valuation. They came into the public market a lot more public scrutiny which is, I mean, the poster boy of that especially is WeWork, right? It it was such a disastrous business model that they couldn't even manage to get into the public market space. But even the other ones, like you mentioned, you know, like Uber, Lyft, Slack, all of them, which they could, at least in the case of the last one, Slack, I think it's a very sound business model, but it's a matter of valuation where you realize that just because some private investor whose incentives might be skewed for other reasons, are willing to pump in, pump in, say, 2 to 3% of the company's valuation at a ridiculously high multiple does not mean the public market will validate that valuation. And then we went about seeing a pretty healthy correction in that case. Yeah, absolutely. So just writing tech in the prospectus didn't work for some of the unicorns. Now, if we move to Aramco, Saudi Aramco, it was the initial public offering that shattered global records. Saudi Aramco, of course, Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil company. The company has overtaken Apple as the world's most valuable company. As an investor, did you sit up when, when that news made the rounds? Uh, sadly had to, right? Because the Saudi market is such a closed uh, uh, system where external investors to get access to that local market, unless you're an extremely large institution, is not that simple. It worked out very well for Aramco. You know, we kind of touched upon this a couple of times already where they can control the valuation to some extent because it's a local uh, Saudi Arabian exchange. And we saw the valuation going, touching or topping $2 trillion. Just to give some context, Apple, which is the next largest, is something like $1.24 trillion as of yesterday's end of close. So obviously a massive uh, win for the local government of Saudi Arabia. But that being said, again, I think the true test will come when they try to do their secondary offering of anywhere from like 4 to 5% in be in like a London, Hong Kong, hopefully Singapore or the US. And that's when we have more market sources, more scrutiny on what the actual underlying oil depository base is of the company. 
and then we'll potentially see what the real valuation could be. That being said, it's an extremely profitable company, and given the size of the business, $2 trillion might not seem that crazy a number. Do you anticipate index providers are going to fast-track the inclusion of Aramco into their benchmarks? Interesting question. And I think given the size of the business, they will be forced to. But I think they will most probably a little bit of a wait-and-see approach for two reasons. One is they want to see much more liquidity coming in, and that can only happen when it's listed in a couple of these other larger financial centers. And let's be honest right now, right, with the whole climate change whole notion going on, adding one of the world's largest pollutants uh, might not be the best media-sounding thing for them. So maybe they'll wait for a little bit. Let's see at the end of Q1. And I'm sure they'll, once they start listening in other exchanges, there'll be a whole host of uh, CSR and ESG initiatives that'll try and facilitate other passive invest, passive index investors to try and include it. There'll be no choice. You, you can't have the world's largest company by market cap not being included in these exchanges. Investors are going to love this. Arun Pai, Chief Crystals Officer at Crystal AI, giving us all a look back at some of the biggest stories that had investors talking in 2019. We can't leave a discussion like this without talking about Facebook facing off with regulators in 2019. I mean, it's got to be part of any look back of the year, right? Facebook facing off with regulators and politicians. But what has the outcome been, Arun? Yeah, so Facebook, I, I think this whole, uh, their Facebook coin uh, generated a lot of headlines, but I think slightly earlier on in 2019, there was a lot of scandals around how information is being used by the company to potentially give targeted ads, especially in the political ad space. I think 2020 will be a massive year for regulation and not just Facebook, but all the tech companies, just because you know, at the at the end of the day, they've just gotten so damn large. Apple, which started the year at like close to $150, has nearly doubled to like close to 280 as of yesterday, end of day, being valued at $1.25 trillion. Facebook, Google, these tech behemoths have become like hundreds of billions of dollars. Not just forgetting even about market cap, but they are literally controlling every single thing in some way, shape or form that we as consumers do on a day-to-day basis. And they've been doing this entire thing being completely unregulated. I think 2020 is definitely going to be a massive year for these tech companies in terms of being much more heavily regulated, especially if some Democrats that have been standing up for elections get elected in next year. So I'm a little bit more fearful to be uh, invested in these companies. They've run up so much last year, taking some profit off the table and waiting to see how these regulations play out might be something a more prudent investor might choose to do. That being said, don't take me wrong, they've obviously uh, facilitated the ease of our living substantially. Uh, I use my Android phone. Uh, you know, Everyone around me uses Apple and Android extensively to do all of their uh, day-to-day needs with like three or four clicks of the button on their phones. But that being said, I think there'll definitely be regulation next year. Very interesting. And now, Arun, we come to that part of the show and we look ahead. When it comes to your investment outlook for 2020, are there a couple of themes that you can share with us? I think I'm closely looking at the shipping sector, going into a little bit more uh, nitty-gritty, I guess. Uh, I think IMO 2020 that's coming up uh, will be quite interesting for the space where there will be 
uh, larger costs borne by uh, the shipping agencies because of using lower emission fuel. And that uh, leading to higher costs will lead to hopefully them passing on those higher costs to uh, other businesses and thereby having a, quite a bit of a turnaround in that specific sector. Generally, though, uh, in 2020, I'm adopting a much more cautious approach. I think 2019 was uh, surprisingly uh, bullish in terms of uh, the kind of returns that we saw across asset classes. Both fixed income and equities rallied anywhere from like 10 to 20%, depending on which sector we came in, which is quite funny, right? Because if you look back at towards the end of 2018, December 24th to be specific, it seemed like the world was coming to an end. Uh, that last quarter, mm-hmm. I think markets crashed by, you know, any close to like 20%. And everyone thought that, okay, this is going to be the end of it. Like the whole massive credit expansion and the economy having been doing so well the last 10 years, it's all coming to an end. Mm. 2019, you know, like we discussed like earlier, interest rates got cut, uh, massive change, even in spite of the huge political headlines of be it Hong Kong, be it the US-China trade war, be it Brexit, the market swept that aside and led the markets to uh, the all-time highs. Personally, I'm taking a much more cautious approach. I think I'm kind of on like Ray Dalio's side in this one. Uh, You're seeing all these massive uh, political headlines, which I think will come to roost this year, Mm -hmm. uh, potentially with even the US elections. Uh, Brexit, I think it's a much smaller economy per se. So even if there is a little bit more noise in that field, it's not going to be the end of the world. But the U.S.-China trade wars will definitely ignite further. I think this first pact that they've done is just to try and appease their respective sides of, uh, well, at least in the U.S.'s case, their election voter base. Uh, But the underlying issues are not resolved. And I think that will lead to a decent correction of currently relatively high multiples that are being found in many pockets of the market. Okay, a lot of good stuff there. I'm going to try and pick apart some key themes. You mentioned it, 2018 at the end, you know, we thought it was uh, almost Armageddon. And then, you know, as we've discussed, 2019 didn't quite turn out uh, the way we anticipated it in 2018. So how resilient is the global economy after the recent slowdown, in your opinion, from where we sit? So, you know, usually there's always sides to the equation, right? Uh, I can see unemployment is close to all-time lows. Uh, the U.S. consumer, God bless their souls, are basically picking up the entire world's uh, economic growth to some extent. Uh, but that being that, that's on like the on, on the pro side. On the con side, sadly, seeing a lot more CFOs and businesses come out with earnings that are not meeting expectations. And because markets are trading at relatively frothy multiples, we are seeing, uh, you know, relatively steep corrections. So, for example, FedEx, which is the bellwether of transportation of mail and logistics, uh, came out with earnings yesterday and the shares dropped close to 10%. Now, uh, if the economy was doing as well as it, uh, you know, many gurus are claiming that they would, you would be seeing... uh, the services businesses, which are facilitating this growth of the economy through transportation and logistics, to be doing exceedingly well. Uh, we've seen a slowdown over there. We've seen Amazon come out with not such good earnings either last quarter. So we're seeing on the corporate side, 
just the beginnings of a potential larger slowdown. The credit markets, uh, like the credit cycles, definitely seems to be a lot more topish. Uh, you look at uh, people like Howard Marks and Ray Dahlia come up with these statements where the economy just cannot sustain these kinds of massive account deficits. And when you start getting a credit contraction, you see the after effects or the waterfall effects of that affecting uh, your everyday uh, person. And that is when the slowdown starts uh, exacerbating to some extent. So I think while right now things might be, uh, might look relatively a little bit more rosy, uh, personally, uh, if you were lucky enough to be long or, uh, you know, owning a bunch of equity or bonds in this last year, uh, personally would take, would adopt a lot more prudent approach. Mm, mm. Great to hear that. At 1027, he's Arun Pai from Crystals AI. Arun, not a fair question, but I want to end here. Is there anything on your radar for 2020 which you think is important, but you haven't heard a lot of people talking about yet? <laughs> um, let's see. I think, uh, while I have seen few people talk about it, I've not seen a lot of people talk about it. And I guess uh, I'll just put it out there as one, uh, you know, red flag to potentially watch out for. Mm -hmm. And that would actually be inflation. I think we've been living in this Goldilocks era of extremely low interest rates, massive amounts of capital being sloshed around in the ecosystem, unemployment close to all-time lows, yet we are not seeing inflation, which is extremely bewildering. Like your interest rates are low, unemployment is extremely low, tremendous amounts of capital, yet that last, and you, you always have seen in the past, like at least 50, 60 years, if not more, inflation spiking up. And for some reason, it could be, you know, there are various uh, pieces then, it's like the gig economy, uh, you know, the private uh, sector, pumping in so much money thanks to VCs and private equity companies that uh, those cost savings are being passed down to the consumer and hence you're not seeing inflation. I think we could come into this weird situation where we actually see bankruptcies of a lot more of these private companies, which leads to this whole cost savings that are being pushed down to the consumer going away, inflation actually going up, yet at the same time unemployment going up. Uh, capital drying out because uh, they've incurred so many losses in this space. So not an ideal situation, obviously, for the world uh, economy, mm -hmm. but I think that's definitely one uh, scary feature that we might see in 2020 that I have not seen a lot of people talk about. Wow, sobering note to end on, but thank you so much for a look back at 2019, some of the biggest business stories, and a look forward, his investment outlook. Arun Pai is Chief Crystals Officer at Crystal AI. Arun, thank you and happy holidays. Thank you so much, Michelle. You too. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.